0: Okay. Hello. Guten Abend, ich kann nicht sprechen sehr gut in Deutsch, also, my lecture is in English, Entschuldigung. So, the lecture is actually divided into two, two parts, Uh, actually three. The first is a short statement about the Documenta 13, The second is a little introduction to the project of publications that we are doing called 100 Gedanken, 100 Notizen, 100 Thoughts, 100 Notes. And the third part is an example of a notebook which I am currently working on. So a future publication. So Documenta 13 is dedicated to artistic research and forms of imagination that explore matter, things, embodiment, an active life. Pache, Hannah Arendt, in connection with, yet not subordinated to thought. These are terrains where politics are inseparable from a sensual, energetic, and worldly alliance between current research in various scientific and artistic fields and other knowledges, both ancient and contemporary. Documenta 13 is driven by a holistic, eco-feminist, and non logocentric vision that is shared with and that recognizes the knowledges of animate, of all the, excuse me, the knowledges of all animate and inanimate makers of the world including people. So that's the general statement, which I have in German as well. So I would like to ask Christian to read it, please.
1: I'm sorry, it will be with a horrible Swiss accent.
0: Nobody's. Just a minute. Nobody's perfect.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Documenta 13 widmet sich künstlerischer Forschung und Formen (laughs) der Imagination, die in Verbindung mit Ideen, aber diesen nicht untergeordnet, Materie, Dinge, Verkörperungen und das tätige Leben erforschen. Auf diesen Gebieten ist Politik untrennbar verbunden mit einem sinnlichen, energetischen und weltlichen Bündnis zwischen der aktuellen Forschung auf verschiedenen wissenschaftlichen und künstlerischen Feldern und anderen historischen wie zeitgenössischen Wissen.
0: No, no,
1: wait, third. Oh, third. Entschuldigung. Documenta 13 wird angetrieben von einer holistischen, ökofeministischen und nicht-logozentristischen Vision. Diese Vision teilt sie mit belebten und unbelebten Weltenmachern, einschließlich Menschen, deren Wissen sie anerkennt.
0: Okay. So that's the first point. Now that we all know exactly what Documenta 13 is about, (laughs) we can move to the second point, which is, I would like to tell you a few things about the notebooks um, which are currently being placed behind you. Uh, We have published uh, 33, I think another 20 are coming out in the next weeks. They're in print and uh, the final, total number of 100 will be ready prior to the opening of Documenta next June. As a prelude to the 2012 exhibition, Documenta 13 is publishing a series of notebooks. And what is a notebook? Or rather, what is a note? A note is a trace, a word, a drawing that all of a sudden becomes part of thinking and is transformed into an idea. This publication project follows that path, presenting the mind in a state of prologue, in a prologue state, in a pre-public arena. It is a space for intimacy and not yet for criticism, where Documenta 13 is publishing the unpublishable, the voice, and the reader is our alibi and our ally. Note taking encompasses witnessing, drawing, writing, and diagrammatic thinking. It is speculative and it manifests a preliminary moment, a passage, and it acts as a memory aid. We write in our notebook what we think we will forget, but what we think we may use at another time in another place. With contributions by authors from a range of disciplines, including art, science, philosophy, and psychology, anthropology, political theory, language, and literature studies, as well as poetry, please note there are not all the fields of human activity or of culture. A hundred notes, a hundred thoughts constitutes a space of documenta to explore how thinking emerges and lies at the heart of reimagining the world. It has a cumulative nature. The notebooks come out occasionally and they accumulate. It is a continuous articulation of the emphasis of Documenta 13 on the propositional, underlying the flexible mental moves that generate space for the possible. Thoughts unlike statements are always variations and this is the spirit in which the notebooks are proposed It is therefore driven by a logic of the mind at work, presenting, writing, drawing scenarios that point outside the normal and the normative bounds of academic text production. Some are facsimiles of existing notebooks. Some are commissioned essays. Collaborations, some, with artists and writers together. And some are conversations. They present, therefore, different models of making connections between the private and the public, between the stage of intuitions where we name ideas and the chain of arguments that provides the reader with an insight into methods, different methods, different working methods. Therefore, the series is formed through interconnections and we can see this series of publications, this pre-publication publication, as an interrenion, a temporary rupture in discursive intelligence they do not direct they are not directed by nor they nor do they direct us towards reason simply and as such but towards a different understanding of the role of consciousness a different epistemology of knowledge some of the authors that you can already read in this series include <clears throat> artist and novelist and poet etel adnan Poet, Kenneth Goldsmith, the founder of ubu.web. Um, social historian and theoretician, Peter Gheorghi. Artist, Emily Jasir with, um, um, <laughs> philosopher, let's say. And art historian, Susan Buckmorse. Uh, filmmaker, Alexander Yorovsky, uh, Myself, William Kentridge. Peter Gallison, Erki Kurianemi with Lars Banglarsen. Georgi Lukas, Christoph Menke, Paul Ryan, Irina Nastasa Renegabri, Vandana Shiva, Gaspar Miklos Tamas, um, Chus Martinez, Michael Tasek, Jalal Tufik, Ian Wallace, and Lawrence Wiener, and many others since I wrote the lecture. (laughs) They are commissioned, indeed, together with agent and head of department, Chus Martinez, and the series is edited by the head of publications of Documenta, Bettina Funk. And they have been presented in public readings and conferences (coughs) since uh, um, Buenos Aires in the last, uh, at least six months ago. And that was followed within a very precise choreography of presentations, uh, which maps the world in a way uh, from a different perspective from the usual mapping of the world. Uh, They were premiered, excuse me, um, not in Buenos Aires, they were premiered in Cairo three months after Tahrir Square in a discussion, and then followed in Buenos Aires, where, as we all know, the first big financial crisis began in the early 2000s, uh, followed by um, New York, uh, then Oslo, Paris, um, Oslo, uh, the Curto Institute in London, so therefore in the space, in the place for thinking art history and new forms of thinking, how one can do art history. Um, and they will be followed by two more presentations, one in Delhi and one in Dakar. One of the characteristics of notes is that a note starts always in the middle. It's the result of daydreaming and semi-consciousness. It never starts at the beginning, like the conscious writing of history or the exercise of reasoning out an argument. A note is always a multitudinous middle So the project as a whole is certainly a reflection on the state of art history. It shows the forming of thinking in an unassuming way, the awakening of a readiness in writing for propositions whose contour and arguments are still in a state of becoming. A thinking that is involved with matter, objects, life, and art with culture today and why matter matters. The notes, indeed, and in the notebooks are a call. They are a call to suspend analysis in favor of speculative skepticism or skeptical speculation. Indeed, this afternoon, just before giving this lecture, I uh, was in a workshop around the thinking of skepticism and the w- the, the texts of Sextus Empiricus, which transcribe in the um, Christian era, Roman period. The ideas and thoughts of many skeptics before Sextus Empiricus, including Pirro, who lived at the time of Alexander the Great, traveled to Bactria, which is the Afghanistan of today, with Alexander the Great, came back, and of course, found impossible to follow the thinking of Aristotle, which he considered dogmatic, and introduced Skepticism, which is based, of course, not on doubt, but it is based on skepsis, which means in Greek, research. These are the notebooks that have come out already, some of the authors and titles. And I think what I'll do now is talk to you a little bit about the notebook that I am working on currently. The last one that you see on that slide, number 52, by Daniel Heller-Roazen, is about how one can hold one's tongue. As you see there, the Lawrence Wiener's notebook, if in fact there is a context, and below the Yodorovsky notebook, on tarots and healing, let's say, So, one day the notebook that I'm working on now is called On the Destruction of Art, or Conflict and Art, or Trauma and the Art of Healing. One day, when I was writing the place name Kassel on my smartphone, I made a mistake and the word was automatically corrected by the very intelligent digital device to Kabul. Oh, this made me think of the conflicted relationship between the technologies of communication on the one hand and intentionality and language on the other. In turn, that made me think about conflicts in general, that is not just war, and then about the destruction of art that often accompanies conflict as a form of trauma. This notebook is a collage of fragments precariously held together by a sense that bodies of culture, just like the bodies of people, and other animate and inanimate elements of the world, survive the knots and the circumstances of history, sometimes intentionally, and sometimes only by chance. It speaks of art objects and taking care of them through time. It speaks of art as a casualty and a form of collateral damage, but at the same time as something that can endure, exemplifying the possibility of survival. The word conflict comes from conflictus, which is the past participle of confligere, which joins cum, which means with, and fligere, which is to strike. Thus suggesting that being against and being connected with, being with, are correlated. Conflict, and by extension trauma, can be looked at from the point of view of intersubjectivity, or it can be looked at from the point of view of within family ties, which is the intermediate social nexus, or it can be looked at in society at large, as well as in our multi-species environments, the conflict between energy and life of humans, for example, an unbounded world of the animate and the inanimate. Conflict is a sharp contrast that explodes into violence, either physically or psychologically. In English, the word first appears in the, 19, in the 1400s and it indicated the struggle between opposing people, peoples. In the 1700s, when the commercial interests of the bourgeoisie become prevalent with the rise of that a new group of people, the expression conflict of interest became in use. And by the 1850s, during the romantic subjectivist century, It had started to be used also psychologically. In fact, a conflicted person was a divided person within whom incompatible urges or impulses are hosted. In 20th century field theory, for instance, a conflicted individual is attracted by two objectives that cannot simultaneously be reached. In classical psychoanalysis, Conflict is an internal struggle between basic impulses, such as hunger or the need for reproduction, and on the other hand, our social and moral prerogatives, our normative, our normed normed life. It expresses itself through many psychic mechanisms, such as removal, sublimation, and transformation, where, for example, the cause of pain is removed and transformed into a neurotic symptom, or a violent and aggressive impulse is transformed into, for example, fear of being persecuted. When we experience a state of emotional tension or pain, our impulse is in fact naturally to remove it psychically. In the text Beyond the Pleasure Principle from 1920, written by Freud after World War I, he noted that beyond every libidinal impulse, there was a deathly drive to release and thus eliminate tension. In the same text, however, he also reflects on another theoretical problem. He notes that the soldiers who came back from the war often relived their traumatic moments, such as the exact moment when a bomb fell near them in their nightmares, and even when they were awake. Since this return and repetition of the traumatic event did not accord with his theory that the causes of tension and pain are removed psychically, the question of trauma remained open and unresolved for him. The relationship between art and conflict follows different paths. An art object can be a terrain of contention where conflict is expressed through its symbolic or real destruction. But it can also be a form of direct activist intervention in a conflict, a form of conflict resolution. Or it can be a form of information or documentation or denunciation, a form of alternative news media of which we have seen quite a lot in the 1990s. Art can be a witness and can express trauma and catharsis on the affective level of an empathetic understanding and elaboration of pain, like in a William Kentridge. It is often a form of collective memorialization and mourning for the losses caused by conflict, like in a Doris Salcedo. and apparently the most disengaged politically of all the above, Art can function as a distraction and a withdrawal from conflict within the legacy of a therapeutic notion of art. If people, art, and artists are under siege or occupation, for example, it may be that only this last form of withdrawn activity is possible. If for no other reason, simply legally possible. And yes, I use this oxymoron in a deliberate way, a withdrawn activity. These paths, all the paths mentioned a moment ago, intersect at an infinite number of points, and most artworks somehow mix a little bit of this and a little bit of that. There is conflict on the level of language, a basic conflict on the level of language itself, Between a tendency towards aphasia, the absence of speech, the non-assertion of the skeptic, one of the three ways of non-assertion, and the move towards utterance between ourselves as animals with semiotic embodied gestural and affective relational expressions and our subjectivity as intellectuals and producers of institutionalized knowledge. There can be a conflict between those. It is often through the poetic voice that language rubs up against content in speech, where utterance becomes complicated, either censored from the outside or even self-censored by the subject, interrupted and suspended by trauma in a search for epoche and ultimately for ataraxia. But the word trauma, we didn't speak about this word. The word trauma in Latin, as well as the Greek traima, from which the Latin derives, indicates a perforation, you know, a perforation, a wound made by a sharp object. It is related to the Indo-European root, ter, which indicates to pass through something, passing through of an object or a body and it entered into English in the 1600s, and only in the late 1800s did it assume a psychological definition and connotation, a psychic wound caused by an act of violence, or by an accident, or by any deeply disturbing experience that causes shock, distress, and disruption of one's life. It is most often discussed in relation to psychiatry, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, and within the realm of literature and film studies, more than in art. For Roger Luckhurst, who is the author of an informative book called The Trauma Question in 2008, it is, quote, a complex knot that binds together multiple strands of knowledge. Modern trauma research, which goes back to the early studies mentioned above, with Freud even, has increased exponentially since the 1970s. When the term post-traumatic stress disorder, shorthand PTSD, was first coined by Bessel van der Kolk as a severe anxiety disorder, a sense of a biological, physical, biological assault on the body that interrupts the flow of one's experience to the degree where one is overwhelmed and cannot cope with the situation and shuts down emotionally, losing the capacity to engage with one's environment, a sort of withdrawn condition. It is cured PTSD in a variety of ways. One of which is encouraging, in, in, mostly it's in behavioral therapies, one of which is encouraging the patient to relive the bodily movements, the same movements of the traumatic moment, and to remember the physical feelings that were experienced during the traumatic events, how one breathed, what temperature one felt, the tactile, what one smelled, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> But what if instead of the traumatized person, one were to think and see things from the point of view of the apparently inanimate artwork? Instead of exploring how we express trauma through artworks, we might explore how artworks themselves become traumatized. Losing their orientation, severed, separated from the experience of their environment or what they thought was their environment or what they imagined was their environment, severed from the experience of their environment in an exhibition, severed from the experience of their environment in a collection, severed from the experience of their environment in a museum, severed from the experience of their environment in a public square, severed from the experience of their environment in the minds of the people, who should or would or could be engaging with them, What would the traumatized subject think if that subject were an artwork or a cultural artifact? What does an object feel when it is attacked or destroyed or even worse, ignored or misunderstood or even misplaced or lost? This reminds me of Walter Benjamin's description of Paul Klee's Angelus Novus, which many of us have read but always a pleasure to evoke in lectures. Paul Kles Angelus Novus painted the same year, 1920, as Freud wrote Beyond the Pleasure Principle just mentioned. And the text by Benjamin, which was posthumously published as the ninth of his thesis on the philosophy of history only in 1955, the same year as the first documenta opened. It is indeed an extraordinary example of such thinking. And he wrote, where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. This storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. In a later essay of 1931 called The Destructive Character, Benjamin wrote how, I quote again, the destructive character sees nothing permanent, but for this very reason he sees ways everywhere. Where others encounter walls or mountains, there too he sees a way. But because, he's, because he sees a way everywhere, he has to clear things from everywhere, not always by brute force, sometimes by the most refined. Because he sees ways everywhere, he always stands at a crossroads, at an intersection. No moment can know what the next will bring. What exists, he reduces to rubble, not for the sake of rubble, but for that of the way leading through it, trauma. Yet destruction is difficult to recount. And in another text by Benjamin from 1936, The Storyteller, Benjamin pointed to a modern crisis in the ability to tell a story. And I quote, as if something that seemed unalienable to us as if something that seemed unalienable to us, the securest among our possessions were taken from us, the ability to exchange experiences. With the First World War, he writes, a process began to become apparent which has not halted since then. What was not noticeable at the end of the war was that men returned from the battlefield grown silent not richer but poorer in communicable experience. So they could not tell stories. If Freud speaks of the neurotic repetition of trauma and PTSD speaks of an interrupted experience due to trauma, similar to Benjamin's observation just made a a moment ago, then how can we apply these ideas to thinking from the point of view of the artwork? What do the rubble and what do the stones at the foot of the empty cavities in the cliff where the Bamiyan Buddhas once stood prior to their bombing and destruction in 2001 see and feel? How do they speak? And how is their speech related to ours? How does their violated materiality come to matter and how does the example of their loss and damage help us to react to a sense of the precariousness of life, the loss and damage to a flow of persons projected onto and projected from those artworks. So, traumatized artworks appear to be on a standby. They are silent, withdrawn from visibility and discourse, like the house portrayed in Virginia Woolf's The Waves, 1931, a house abandoned by humans and waiting in a suspended time for the end of the war and the return of its inhabitants. Or like Validrad's miniature shrunk retrospective of his own previous works in a model-sized tabletop exhibition space, that he has been presenting in performative guided tours since 2008, and entitled Part 1, Chapter 1, Section 139, The Atlas Group, 1989-2004. Withdrawn and surpassing disaster, as his colleague and friend, Jalal Tufik, has described in related texts. Such works are speechless, numb, witnesses of conflict, traumatized subjects unable to tell their stories. Aside from the Oedipus complex, Freud did not develop many theories around the relationship between conflict existing within the psyche of a single person and external conflict as a symptom or product of our interconnected relations. It was instead a woman, Melanie Klein, in her book, Envy and Gratitude, and later, some years later, also Jacques Lacan, who looked at conflict in the dyadic mother-child relationship as constituent of subjectivity since birth. While at first our mother's body is felt to be the extension of our own, the moment we become aware of the separation between us, we feel loss, depression, and mourning. Melanie Klein wrote, In turn, this can cause envy, which is nothing else but an aggressive position towards the power that the other body has over our own, the power to give or withdraw their bodies from us, to give or withdraw the milk. Or, alternatively, there can be a sense of gratitude towards the other as a provider. When envy prevails, it is because we do not accept the existence of another person who is deemed a limitation on our own freedom. When gratitude prevails, a relation of creativity, dialogue, and integration is constructed through our recognition that we do not define our identity alone. For there to be a conflict, both the child and the mother must exist in a state of aggression. The mother is afraid of the aggressive nature of her envious child. If she is not afraid, if she withdraws from the conflict, hosme, to act as if it is not, as in the letter of Saint Paul to the Romans, etc., etc. The conflict is diffused. <clears throat> in conflict, there is always a web of contradictory elements without a simple solution. And art, interestingly enough, art is a striated space. And it allows one to hover and remain in the realm of ambiguity and contradictions, in the space of opacity. Therefore, it is a space where one can exercise the capacity to understand complex and apparently unresolvable conflicts. Art is an exercise in ambivalence as opposed to violence and also has the potential of inventing ways of life that can be less costly, more ingenious, and less demanding in terms of labor, energy, and time, and also less self-destructive. Of course, art can suspend, but art can also increase conflict. We know this. That was the theory of the early 20th century avant-garde. If the context of the conflict is ignored, however, if one acts as if there were no conflict, if the artistic act withdraws from conflict, like the mother subtracting herself from the envy-aggression game, and engages with the traumatized art object from the point of view of gratitude, I am grateful to you as a traumatized art object, one can enter into a form of worldly alliance with inanimate makers of the world. That is where the sphere of art, which is poised on the edge of the private and history, not the private and public, no. Art is poised on the edge of the private and of history, can become a location in which one can experiment with experience on the edge of the anthropocentric, for example, where the rubble lies and can build an imaginative society where the human is not the center of one's cosmology, but only one element within an accord of all those other makers, including traumatized people and objects. But perhaps at this point it is better that I show you a few more pictures from my notebook which I have gathered for you. Now this is a picture you all know. Sometime before 1932 or maybe you think you know because you know something similar. Sometime before 1932, Man Ray made this ink on paper drawing of an objet objet a détruire, object to be destroyed. It was published in Andre Breton's Parisian magazine this quarter, the same year, 1932 and it was accompanied by the following text written by Man Ray which I'll help you read, it's there, but cut out the eye from a photograph of one who has been loved but is seen no more. Attach the eye to the pendulum of a metronome and regulate the weight to suit the tempo desired. Keep going to the limit of endurance. With a hammer well aimed, try to destroy the hole at a single blow. This drawing was exhibited in Alfred Barr's 1936 exhibition called Fantastic Art, Dada and Surrealism at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. But presumably in 1923, Man Ray had made the first object version of this artwork by attaching indeed the photograph of an eye to a metronome. He kept this in his studio while he painted suggesting that the metronome was a witness to the art-making process and perhaps that what was being destroyed was time itself. Arturo Schwarz remembers Man Ray telling him how he turned the metronome into the object of destruction. Man Ray says I had a metronome in my place which I set going when I painted like the pianist sets it going when he starts playing Its ticking noise regulated the frequency and number of my brush strokes. The faster it went, the faster I painted. And if the metronome stopped, then I knew I had painted too long. I was repeating myself, my painting was no good and I would destroy it. A painter needs an audience. So I also clipped the photo of an eye to the metronome's swinging arm to create the illusion of being watched as I painted. One day, I did not accept the metronome's verdict, the silence was unbearable, and since I had called it with a certain premonition, object of destruction, objet à détruire, I smashed it to pieces. Later, sometime between 1929 and 1932, he changed the original picture of the eye to that of his lover, muse, and fellow surrealist, Lee Miller whom he had met in 1929 in Paris. It has been said both by Man Ray himself and by others that when Lee Miller left him in 1932, she went to Cairo and fell in love with an Egyptian businessman. He destroyed the object with a hammer, again, only to remake it in order to exhibit it at the Galerie Pierre Colle in Paris in 1932 in an exhibition of surrealist objects under the title, the new title, Oeil Metronome. And Lee Miller stated in an interview of 1975, when they were both still alive, we are in dispute of the very definitive fashion in which my eye was fixed to the metronome of the original objet à détruire. I believe it was named objet à détruire, as a means of transforming it, like one of those wax dolls one forces needles through. Trauma. Because one moves the eye to make it tic-tac like an alarm, and one must buy a hammer in order to crush it. Later on, Man Ray would continue to carry little cut-out Lee Miller eyes in his jacket pocket, and he would occasionally buy a metronome and attach an eye to it when he wanted to give someone a present. Tony Penrose, Lee Miller's son, told me when I visited him in 2010 during documentary research. In 1932, no, the 1932 unique replica of the first metronome was destroyed, however, by dada poets called Jarivistes. Not Arrivistes, but Jarivistes, like Jarry. Led by the poet Jean Pierre Rosnay when visiting a Dada exhibition in Paris in 1957, two years after the first documenta. Perhaps musing on the fact that it is impossible to destroy memory intentionally, or for that matter, ready-made art, given the non-unique character of its materials, Man Ray made another replica with Arturo Schwartz Editions in 1958 in Milan. Under the title Indestructible Object, So not objet à détruire, but objet indestructible. And after a few more replicas, unique replicas, which is a very interesting concept, uh, made in 1961 with his gallerist Julian Levy, another unique replica in 1963, together in the collection of the Israel Museum, and another unique replica in 1964, together today in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art so everybody's happy that they have the unique replicas, he finally activated a new version of the same artwork in 1965 with Daniel Sperry, the artist, uh, who had an editions, edition Mat, which was conceived in an edition of 100. But the edition was never completed by the artist. In this way, Man Ray created a paradoxical situation in which the artwork was emancipated from its own destruction the limits of time, materiality, and the art market. It constitutes one of the first conceptual multiples, freeing art from the ravages of time. The artwork reappeared with other titles at other times, for example, Lost Object in 1945, and that that was transformed by a printer's error into Last Object in 19... (laughs) sometime, at some point. Uh, And he liked it, last last object, last object. And in 1970, he decided to make a further variation called Motif Perpetuel in an edition of 40 metronomes, each with a blinking eye this time, lenticular eye, editioned by the Turin-based gallery Il Fauno in 1974. Of course, we are well into the years of op art and kinetic art, and so he had to make it blink. This, on the other hand, is a photograph that Lee Miller shot with her camera of image it's an image of dead bodies beside a train during her visit to Dachau concentration camp on the morning of April 30th 1945 And here is another image of Lee Miller herself in Adolf Hitler's bathtub in his Munich apartment on Prinzregentenplatz taken during the afternoon of April 30th, 1945. At the suggestion of David Sherman, who was a photographer for Life magazine, she was indeed traveling through Germany at the time as an embedded photographer with U.S. troops for Vogue magazine, for which she had done fashion photographs in London, in bombed London over the year 1944. And she had spent the morning of April 30th at Dachau, near Munich. She stayed and slept in the apartment for several nights with David Sherman, who at the time was perhaps her lover, and who probably shot this picture for her. The photograph appears to have been staged. I would say it's a very staged photograph by Miller. And it speaks, I believe, about the role of art in relation to world events or politics. It is what I consider a traumatized, silent photograph that suggests the impossibility of speech after what she had seen that same morning. The same day the picture was taken, Hitler committed suicide in his Berlin bunker. On a symbolic and also on a bodily level, Miller takes his place. She substitutes, she creates a substitution She takes a bath in his bathtub. In part, she becomes the victimizer, washing herself of his crimes. It is indeed what I would say is a mythic photograph, as if she were attempting to cleanse humanity of its crimes. Miller was aware of the fact that Hitler was interested in art and had taken painting classes. On the table of the image you see there is a porcelain figurine. It's actually um, glass ceramic figurine in the realist nationalist neoclassical style of Germany and Italy in the 1930s and early 1940s. Designed by Rudolf Keesbach and produced as an addition by Rosenthal in 1936 with the title "Die Ausschauende. Inspired by the Venus of Milo, of course, as well as by Renoir's La Baigneuse of 1870, as well as by many, many other um, iconic, it's an iconic pose, the figure's arm is raised. Miller also raises her arm slightly, holding a washcloth. She may also have been thinking of man-raised photograph of Merritt Oppenheim, which, of course, she knew well, in a similar pose with black ink or paint staining her uplifted arm and holding a wheel, a subject trapped in the machine of modernity. <clears throat> if Man Ray's image was in conversation with Marcel Duchamp's La Mariée Mise à nu par ses célibataires mêmes, the so-called large glass of 1915, 1923, and we know that the Merritt Oppenheim photograph was in conversation with the large glass, then Lee Miller's photograph could also secretly refer to the structure of the large glass with its bipartite universe. The small machine then on the table near the sculpture would echo the broyeuse de chocolat. Hitler is himself portrayed, as you see in a photograph, in the upper portion of this image in what looks to me like a staged, a media, a press image, an image made in a studio. As if the balanced world of Duchamp has been turned upside down and his célibataire had for some weird reason made it to the upper portion of the large glass. Could this therefore be a proto-feminist accusation against the patriarchal military world that lay behind the image? The object or device, the little machine with wheels on the table beside the little sculpture, is probably a small device for calling servants. However, its shape alludes to that of a typical camera, a photographic camera of the time, and therefore it alludes to the device that permits the obscenity of photography's detached power over life a feeling akin to survivor syndrome that Lee Miller may indeed have felt in Dachau or in the afternoon after Dachau with her camera. An obscenity that Susan Sontag speaks about, of course, in her 1970 book on photography. Her dirty boots lie at the foot of the tub and they have dirtied with the mud of the camp, the the, the bath rug. And on a nearby chair, her small watch is placed on top of the clothes that she presumably wore to the camp. Time is stopped, the watch, the metronome. It is a photo of the camps, but it is an indirect photo of the camps, without the literality of body horror. (coughs) Gustav Metzger is an artist who lives in London. He left Germany as a child in 1939 as part of the refugee children movement which brought Jewish children out of Germany that year. It was the last big uh, movement of children. Um, He he never saw his uh, parents again and he still lives in London without a passport The image that you see shows what is left of one of the highly colored pastel on paper drawings that actually represent a couple embracing, perhaps making love, that Metzger probably made between 1953 and 1957 when he took a studio in Kingsling in East Anglia. I know that it looks like a couple making love because this is particularly destroyed, but it's part of a series of works in which it's quite evident what he's representing. After drawing his auto-destructive art, no, after drafting his auto-destructive art manifesto in 1959, the year of the second documenta, he collected all his early drawings that he had made since 1945 into a suitcase and he stored them away in 1965 above a garage at the home of a relative in North London, where they were kept until 2010. Most are in a relatively good state of conservation. However, this one in particular was destroyed by humidity and by folding, suggesting a loop in time It also presents a paradox given the care that the artist had put into conserving it and given his later work based on the repetition of the trauma of destruction as an indirect act of outrage towards a 20th century society that appeared yet again at that time during the Cold War and the nuclear arms race to be moving towards self-destruction and catastrophe once again. We opened the drawings together and I took this photograph with my smartphone by permission of the artist. These three pages, this is the first, this is the second, this is the third. These three pages, two of them hand numbered as pages 18 and 19 and the final one unnumbered were discovered by Chus Martinez in May 2011 during a second trip to look at the drawings. I had asked her to look through the Gustav Metzger papers at the Tate Archives in London while I was looking at the drawings again at Jayhawk storage. Never transcribed, published, or reprinted as facsimiles before, they are the artist's notes dated October 19th, 1959, on self-destructive art, an expression that predates the term auto-destructive art, eventually chosen as the title of the manifesto to which they led. The manifesto was released as a leaflet dated November 4th, 1959. We're almost at the end, hopefully. I'll have to read faster. At first distributed on the occasion of Metzger's Cardboards Exhibition at Cafe at Monmouth Street. A comparative analysis of these October notes, this one, and the manifesto which most art students have read, illuminates his decision to use the term auto instead of the term self. In in Greek, autos means him, her, it's same. As a prefix, it is used to indicate an event that is caused by one's own agency, like suicide, as in the term automatic, that which moves by its own impulse, and autodestructive, that which destroys itself. And it, it has assumed a mechanical connotation in modernity. Self, on the other hand, is interesting because it is very similar. It derives from the Germanic pronoun selbaz which practically is a synonym of the Greek autos. But in modern English, self developed to include the connotation of a subject having a form of reflective self-consciousness. And this may be indeed the reason why Metzger chose not to keep the prefix self, since no reflective self-consciousness could commit such insane acts as those perpetrated during World War II or those that seemed to be looming in the late 1950s during the nuclear arms race. Another interesting point to note is that while the Greek autos is also related to the notion of same, that is identical to something just mentioned, the proto-Germanic Zelbas comprises the Indo-European root sve, which means quite the opposite. It means something which is separate and apart. So only a collapse of critical distance, a lack of separateness could cause auto-destruction, while withdrawal, exodus, retreat from partaking in a context, no, retreat for partaking in a contest, an art strike, as Metzger put it in 1974, calling for artists to stop making works for three years, from 77 to 1980, could have a generative human and radical political potential for the self. Now, there are many, many pages here that I'm not gonna read comparing the first manifesto and the second manifesto, but I will leave it at (coughs) that one comparison to show you a few more pictures and then let you go off to your dinners, and myself as well. The National Museum of Lebanon, okay, Beirut was founded in Beirut in 1937 and first opened in 1942. During the Lebanese Civil War of 1975 to 1990, it was severely damaged due to its location. It was on the front line separating warring factions in downtown Beirut, an area known today as Museum Alley that was at that time a checkpoint controlled variously by Lebanese militias, the Syrian army, and the Israeli army. The museum endured shelling, bombing and flooding throughout the 1980s when the curators, the curators, (laughs) chose to close it and began to safeguard the material heritage it contained in various ways. I do think a lot about Judith Butler's idea of putting one's body on the line and curators can also put their bodies on the line. Smaller objects were hidden and stored in the basement, which was walled up, while larger and heavier artifacts, including floor mosaics and sarcophagi, were encased in wood first and then covered with concrete cement. After the war in 1990, 1991, the discovery was made that a fire in the wing that had, been shelled and, uh, that, that, that had been shelled, had destroyed some documents, many documents and records, including maps and photographs, as well as 45 boxes containing archeological objects such as those that I am showing you today and that had melted together. In 1999, the museum reopened and still hosts an important collection of antiquities. But let me tell you about these two objects. The one on your left, number 13630 of the museum classification system, is an object resulting from the fusion of metal, ivory, glass, and terracotta objects that had happened to be next to each other when a fire burned for long hours in one of the museum storerooms, wrote the curator in an email to me some months ago. Nobody could reach this area, and certainly not the first floor where the fire was raging. At this stage, it is difficult to identify with certainty from the terracotta and the ivory shards, the objects that burned. It is also quite impossible to determine the shape of the glass that melted and was combined with the other objects. That's from Anne Maria Feche on August 4th, 2011. The object on the right, on the other hand, is a bronze object, as you can see easily, number 28108, and it is also the result of fusion, heat. It is a combination of two bronze figurines, one human and one zoomorphic, from the Biblos excavation, dating back to the Middle Bronze Age. Of course, the copper alloy is very badly damaged, but the figurines are identifiable. There is quite a large bibliography concerning these Biblos ex votos. And this is the niche where the Western Buddha stood after the month-long destruction of the giant 53-meter-high Buddha statue, demolished finally after many, many attempts by an explosion on March 12th, 2001 in the Bamyan Valley in Afghanistan. The photograph was taken by, um, um, actually by Michael Petzet of the ICOMOS, the Deutsche National Committee, who is one of my advisors as well. Um, and the two other photos are taken by Praxin in 2002, during one of the um, research and um, conservation trips that Michael Petzet often went on. And what you see in the pictures here are fragments of the Eastern Buddha in Bamiyan that Germany has been quite involved in conservation. And I'm going to skip the letter from Michel, I'll show you a few last pictures. This is a photograph taken by Michael Rakowitz of his own artwork, and this is a detail. These are images of the installation called The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, Recovered, Missing, Stolen in Series, as it was installed in the format in which it was installed in the Sharjah Biennale in the Sharjah Art Museum in 2007. It has been shown in various locations. The objects on the five meter long table are made out of Middle Eastern packaging, newspapers, and glue. And they they reproduce looted ancient Mesopotamian artifacts that were in the collection of the National Museum of Iraq, originally founded in Baghdad in 1926, closed during the first Gulf War, and reopened in the year 2000 until 2003, when a tremendous looting of antiquities took place after the arrival arrival of the US troops in Baghdad. The museum is, however, supposed to reopen now in the month of November of 2011. I I haven't gotten the invitation card yet, but I will search. The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist unfolds as a narrative about artifacts stolen from the National Museum of Iraq in the the aftermath of the invasion. The current status of their whereabouts and the series of events surrounding the invasion, the plundering, and the related protagonists, writes Mike Rackavis. The name comes from from a direct translation of Shapu, the ancient Babylonian processional way that ran through the Ishtar Gate. And there's many, many words which you will read in the notebook by Mike Rakowitz. Now this, and we're coming to an end. I saw this large tapestry in 2010 when I was doing research for Documenta 13 in Oslo and researching the tapestries of Hanarigen with the agent Marta Kuzma. It was bought by the Norwegian government in order to decorate the lobby of a high-rise building on the government quarter in central Oslo. But on July 22nd, 2011, at 3.25, a bomb detonated in Regjeringskvartalet, downtown Oslo, and damaged the tapestry that I had seen only a year before. Inger, the conservator at one of the museums, responsible for the preservation and repair ongoing now of the tapestry, stated in a short phone call, the tapestry was mildly damaged after the attack of July 22nd. Apart from the water damage, so the water to stop the fire, dust, some dust splinters, and a huge amount of glass dust covering the tapestry. The main damage is a tear in the bottom left-hand corner of the tapestry. The water has now been absorbed and all particles are manually being removed by tweezers. The most urgent repairs are executed and we are now starting the process of returning the tapestry to its original state," she said. I wonder what that original means, that original state, and what the tapestry felt at the time that the bomb exploded. So this notebook is running out of pages and is coming to an end. It started with some notes on silence, suggested by Benjamin's notes on the storyteller, and it ends with notes on silence, according to the artist Anna Bogigian from Cairo. The following three images, one, two, and three, are untitled drawings by Bogigian, and they they were all made during her travels in 2001, 2001, using colored crayon and pencil on 40 by 30 centimeter sheets of 200 gram Sennelier paper. As is usual for her, she combines drawing and writing into a seamless story. She writes with images and draws with words. Each is followed by a transcription of the words that she wrote down, which now I will read to you, both as a form of drawing and writing, a form of listening to silence that becomes a form of seeing. So I will help you read this because it's bad script, but you can follow in the slide. In the words that I collected and put away, in my thoughts were systems of reasoning or dialects, thinking, methods, relation, times, words described who I am or who I transmit To be, through the sound system, I build images of cities unique to that particular city that I dream of. Or remember, in the depth of my mind, the sounds of a city, the song of a crow, makes India to me. Yet the crow is everywhere. In each country I visit. But the way the crows sing in India is particular to that peninsula. From ear to ear to I, from ear to ear to they, ear dropped into all my thoughts, my words and actions, they wove a story that made out of me a criminal. But what was the crime? Political, social or religious or altogether? A fabrication, I threatened something somewhere to the established system of politics, that power that controls the system of or everybody. Life, I couldn't throw stones to the existing system. As I cannot say, I do not have my own sins, but neither can I relate to the woven story of my existence that I can't recognize as I or I The word created my mind, images, took meaning, stories, was, is, woven through the words that I have. The passage from the outer ear to the land of my inner ear formulates a given description of a set of action lived. Through hearing, I created or met the world by where my inner self and created descriptions of the world within my mind. I stored the information necessary in my luggage. The luggage that I was born with. The words I heard expressed or explained to me what the world is about. And when I created stories in my mind, I used those vocabulary that was given to me. In a world of silence, there is no words, no singing of birds or traffic noise. It is the silence of lack of hearing, different from silence, the silence of infinity. That's the end. That's all folks.